0: Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Acts chapter 4. All fall long, we have been exploring the book of Acts together, and we're continuing that study today. We've really been exploring the birth of the church and its rapid spread, especially in these first chapters in and around Jerusalem. But I entitled this message, Underdog Story, and I titled it that way for reasons that will hopefully become clear as we work our way through this passage. For now, let me just say that everyone loves an underdog story. Uh, We like to root for the little guy. We do this in sports. I mean, every once in a while, a Cinderella team kind of comes out of nowhere and knocks off a perennial favorite or an unknown boxer somehow knocks out the heavyweight champion uh, we do this in business, right? There's uh, you know those stories of the entrepreneur who kind of starts uh, starts up a company and somehow dethrones this massive corporation. There's lots of underdog stories, and they kind of resonate with us. We root for those things. Uh, sometimes the establishment actually loses. Sometimes the house doesn't win. And when we turn our attention to the Bible, we find that it is filled with underdog stories. I mean, everyone knows the story of David and Goliath, a lowly shepherd boy armed with just a sling and a stone or a few stones, manages to defeat this Philistine giant who is dressed in heavy armor and armed to the hilt. But the Bible is actually filled with those kind of stories. When you stop to think about it, we could think about Gideon's army. That is just 300 men, but somehow manages to defeat an army of thousands. We could think about Moses v. Pharaoh or Daniel v. Babylon. What makes the biblical underdog stories unique is that the victories that are won were not the result of luck. They weren't the result of being in the right place at the right time. They were the result of the sovereign hand of God of God, and nothing can stand against God's hand when he acts. But if I were to ask you, what is the biggest underdog story in the Bible? I think most of you would say, well, it is the story of David and Goliath. And I think I would have said that too. I mean, that is the story that gets all the press. It's the one everyone knows. But after reading and reflecting on the book of Acts, I actually think that the story of the church is the biggest underdog story of all time. And the passage we're looking at this morning helps us understand why that is. So let's look now at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. And here's what it says. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven or given among men by which we must be saved. Well, I I think uh, as we work our way through this passage, I've just highlighted what we discover here under three headings, and the first one is the weakness of human authority. Now, I say the weakness of human authority, even though at first glance it looks like uh, an impressive show of strength. I mean, notice the way the authorities are piled up in verses 1 and 5. Verse 1 says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. And then in verses 5 and 6, it refers to the rulers. The elders, the scribes, or verse 5 says, the rulers, elders, and scribes all gathered together in Jerusalem. So the rulers represented the state, the scribes represented academia, and the chief priests represented the religious authority. Along with those groups, we're told in verse 6 that Annas, the high priest, was there, Caiaphas, the former high priest, was there, John and Alexander, and in fact, all who were of the high priestly family were there. And Luke relates this account to us in such a way that we're supposed to understand all the power brokers were on one side. The deck was stacked against Peter and John. So to try to put this in contemporary terms, uh, as you think about this, there are three branches of the U.S. government. There's a legislative branch, which is made up of Congress, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. It's called the legislative branch because they make and pass the laws that govern the country. There's the executive branch. That is the president, the vice president, the cabinet ministers who are supposed to advise him. Or to advise the president. Then there is the judicial branch, which is the Supreme Court, that actually interprets and applies the law in accordance with the Constitution. All three of those things. That's the U.S. government. So my American friends can correct me later if I'm wrong, but if one political party controls all three branches of government, they can basically do whatever they want, at least for a season. Now, if that analogy doesn't quite work for you, you might think of another situation where all the power seems to reside on one side. Let's say the government, the media, and the educational institutions are all lined up on one side. They've got a prevailing narrative that you must adhere to, and if you're outside of that, you are in trouble. That's what the situation looked like in the first century. And it wasn't just those who gathered together on one side, or to use a boxing analogy, who was in the blue corner. It was also about what they could do, what powers they could exercise. And notice what they did with their power. Listen again to verses 2 and 3. It says, They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, Peter's going to go on to question the validity of their arrest. He's going to say, Is it because of the good deed that we did? Is that why we're, we were thrown in prison? But listen, this is what they could do. If they didn't like what you were teaching, they could have you arrested, they could put you in prison. Now, I think lots of us sitting here hear that, and we think, Well, that was the first century. So we can just kind of dismiss that. I don't think we should be so quick to dismiss that. You know, I've had the opportunity to spend time with pastors in places like Algeria or from places like Algeria and Mauritania and China where they have experienced this kind of thing firsthand. And not only did I not feel qualified to teach these men, I didn't feel qualified to shake their hands. But actually, you don't have to travel to one of those places to understand that there is an increasing pressure on the church not to say, not to teach what falls outside of the boundaries of an accepted narrative. Now, I said this is about the weakness of human authority, and I know so far I haven't done anything to convince you of that. I've just highlighted its apparent strength. But I think it's important to know that appearances can be deceiving, In fact, often when you find an external display of strength, like the one we see here from these authorities, it betrays their inherent weakness. Uh, One of my favorite stories about that is found in the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Now, the book of Esther is set at a time when Israel was living in exile. They were living under Persian rule. And the book begins with an impressive description of the Persian king. I'm going to read a fair bit of it. It just describes his wealth and his power, and it starts like this. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. When we read that, we're supposed to be impressed by that. I mean, Xerxes or Ahasuerus had an inordinate amount of earthly authority. It says he ruled over 127 provinces. His rule extended from India to Ethiopia. He had incredible wealth. He could use it at his disposal. Every other authority figure was in submission to him. They answered to him. They served him. And he made the rules. He made the laws about everything right down to the details of no one being under compulsion to drink at his parties. Now, that might seem like a lot of power, but real power actually doesn't consist in regulating such minutia. In fact, the tendency to regulate such details is actually a sign of weakness, not power, right? We call those people micromanagers. And if you've ever worked for someone like that, you don't look at them and say, wow, what a great leader you look at them and say, well, I think they're doing this to compensate for a lack of real significance by this kind of attention to minuscule details. But you actually see the weakness of his authority in another more significant way. If you keep reading Esther chapter 1, you read this. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, biztha, harbona, bigtha, and Abagtha, Zithar, and k- great names, Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So the king issues a command that his wife, Vashti, is to appear before him in her crown. And lots of commentators think that means only her crown. She's supposed to parade before all of his drinking buddies and show off her beauty. And she says, no. All the power in the world seemed to reside in the hands of King Ahasuerus. But in reality, he couldn't even get his wife to do what he wanted her to do. And keep reading, and what you'll find is that in response to that, he, he does what leaders do who have no real authority. He enacts more rules, more regulations, more laws. Chapters going to go on to say that the laws of the Medes and the Persians could not be revoked. The laws of the Medes and the Persians could not be revoked, but Vashti shows they could be refused. All it took to bring the system to its knees was someone to stand up and say, no. See, that's the weakness of human authority. And part of the reason it's important to understand this for us is because we tend to be intimidated by human authority. I mean, it can be discouraging to think that all the cultural institutions are controlled by those who are in opposition to the gospel. In many ways, the Christian church has become a convenient punching bag for all that ails the West today. And sometimes we just want to run for cover, but we don't need to. Sometimes all it takes is for us to say, no, no, we're not going to go along with that. We're not going to alter our message. We're not going to cower in a corner. We're going to do what Peter and John did here, what they had the boldness to do. We're going to continue to preach about Jesus. And that takes us to the second thing we see in this passage, which is the power of God's word. So you have on the one side the weakness of human authority. The other thing on display here is the power of God's word. There's a contrast here. Listen again to verses 1 and 2. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the guard, and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were Teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So beyond the healing of the lame man, the apostles' activity is described in the following terms. Speaking, teaching, and proclaiming. And it is specifically the proclamation from the apostles about the resurrection of Jesus that has the authorities so upset or annoyed. Now, the subtitle for our series in the book of Acts is Mission and Message. And I've probably said it before in this series. I will probably say it again. But you cannot separate the mission of Jesus from the message about Jesus. See, the mission of the apostles was not, well, let's do some good. Let's heal some people. Their good works were always accompanied by proclamation about Jesus. They spoke, they taught, they proclaimed. See, we believe there is power not just in the demonstration of the gospel, those things that we might do. We believe there is power in the proclamation of the gospel. That's why I told you a couple of weeks ago that the sermon accompanies the sign in Acts chapter 3. See, the demonstration of the gospel in the healing that Peter and John did resulted in a single lame man being healed. But notice what happened from their proclamation of the gospel. Listen again now to verse 4. So right after they're arrested, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. This is the fourth numerical note that we have had in the book of Acts. Uh, We had the first one back in chapter 1 where we were told that the company of believers was in all about 120 people. Remember the note back in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It says, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Later in chapter 2, we were told that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And now we're told that the number has grown to 5,000. But more than that, we're told that this number continued to grow in spite of the opposition against it. And what we're supposed to understand is that you can imprison God's servants, but you cannot imprison God's word. You can stop the spread, or you can't stop the spread of the gospel by imprisoning those who preach it. And history is replete with examples of that very thing. You know, those who've tried to rid the world of the memory of Jesus have been unsuccessful. Back in the 1920s, as part of their communist propaganda, the USSR formed the League of the Militant Godless. Their express purpose was to stamp out all remnants of the Christian faith. In 1929, their magazine cover showed two workers dumping Jesus out of a wheelbarrow, and that was to symbolize the dawn of the day of industrialization. Their message was basically, look, Jesus is no longer needed. But the leader of that movement, a man by the name of Yumelian Yaroslavsky, grew frustrated at the stubbornness of the Christian faith. Here's what he said. He said, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. And that's exactly what we see here in Acts chapter 4. But many of those who heard the word believed. At some point in my life, I remember hearing a poem that compared the Bible to an anvil. And I went to look for that poem this week, and I, I found that John Piper actually took that idea and turned it into a parable. He said this, he said, Once upon a time... In a land before there were any cars or modern machines, a time when horses and carriages and wagons were common on the dirt roads, there was a blacksmith shop with a large, heavy, well-worn anvil. One day a little farm boy who had never left the farm came with his father to town for the first time. Everything was new and different. As he walked with his father down the unpaved street, he heard a loud clang, clang, clang. He says to his father, what is that? His father said, come, I'll show you. And he took his son to the door of the blacksmith's shop. And there the boy saw a huge man, a strong man, lifting a big, heavy hammer with a a long handle, a large head, lifted it high in the air as if to chop down a tree, and then crashing it down on a glowing piece of metal, On top of the anvil. He hit the anvil so hard that it made the boy wince with every blow. His father explained to him that this was a blacksmith who made all kinds of metal pieces for wagons and carriages and plows and tools and horseshoes. But the little boy was fixed on one thing the long, heavy hammer and the great metal anvil. They met each other with such a loud sound and with such a force that he thought, surely this anvil could not last long. The big, strong blacksmith paused for a moment to catch his breath and saw the boy standing in the doorway. Aren't you going to break that thing? The boy asked, pointing at the anvil, but the blacksmith smiled and said, this anvil is a hundred years old and has worn out many hammers. See, the Bible is like that anvil. It isn't weakened at all by all the blows that rain down on it. Now, it's lasted far more than 100 years, and it has worn out countless hammers. That's the power of God's Word. It has not only stood the test of time. But it often does its best work in the midst of difficult times. And so here, in spite of the opposition from the authorities, in spite of the arrest of Peter and John, the word of God continued to grow. And many believed. In spite of the arrest of Peter and John, the church continued to grow. That's the underdog story. It's written all through the Bible. Here's what the Apostle Paul would later say while he's in prison. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So what had happened to him was his arrest and imprisonment. But Paul's perspective on that was not that he was a captive, but that he had a captive audience, right? That all those who guarded him had to hear about the gospel. And I would just say that same scenario has played out countless times through church history. So there's the weakness of human authority, and there is the power of God's word. Third thing we learn about in this passage is the gift of salvation, and there are several things that we can say about this gift. The first one is simply that it is a gift. Now, a gift by its nature is something that is undeserved. I know Christmas is approaching, and I know sometimes we talk about giving gifts for good behavior, right? If you were a good little boy or a good little girl, you know you might get this gift or a good spouse, I guess. Um, but technically, if you earned it, it's a reward, not or it's a reward or a payment. It's not a gift, and we can see the startling nature of the gift that is given in Jesus by looking at Peter's answer to the authorities in verse eight. Peter says this, and Peter, filled with the, with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man." By what means this man has been healed, now let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this, or by him, this man is standing before you well. Now when Peter says what he says, he says it not just to establish the guilt of those who crucified Jesus. You crucified him. Because the tr- He says it's not just to establish their guilt because the truth is every one of us is guilty. His point is that Jesus was God's gift of salvation to unworthy people. That's an incredible gift. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. And we read this all through the New Testament. So Romans chapter 5, we read, well, for a while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or in First John chapter 4, we read this, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, this is the gift of salvation that's found in Jesus. It's not something we've earned. We've done everything to earn God's wrath, but God sends Jesus to be our Savior. It's a gift. Second thing we can say about this gift is that it's an unexpected gift. Now, I mean something specific by that. I mean what verses 10 and 11 say. And those verses say, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So we've already seen that one of the themes in this passage is that appearances can be deceiving. The authorities look like they have all the power, but they don't. We also see that theme in relation to Jesus as well. Peter refers to Jesus here as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, why does he do that? I mean, it could be just to distinguish Jesus from other people named Jesus in the first century. It was a common name. But I think there's more to it than that. Nazareth, as you might know, was a despised place among the Jews in the first century. It was the kind of place you tended to look down your nose at. So in Matthew chapter 2, we have this note. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. And the idea there... Just before that says that he was despised. Or we could look at what it says in John chapter 1 where it tells us that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The expected answer is no, it can't. And here Peter reminds us, Jesus, or reminds them, Jesus of Nazareth. This is who you crucified. But he's actually become the cornerstone or the most important stone in the building. So Peter refers to Jesus as the stone rejected by the builders that has become the cornerstone. That's a quote from Psalm 118 where it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The picture of that comes from the ancient practice of building great structures with stones. And those, these stones would be cut out at a rock quarry, then they would be chiseled into the right shape, and then they would be slid into place. And the image here is of a stone. The builders take a look at the stone, and they say, well, it's not worth anything. It's not going to be good for building. Let's just throw it on the garbage heap. They think it's worthless but later they discover they can't actually complete their building without it. Now, there's some debate as to whether the Greek word here is better translated capstone or cornerstone. A capstone is the highest stone in the corner of a wall which holds the two sides of a building together. cornerstone is the foundation stone on which the entire building rests. Either way, it's an important stone. The builders mistakenly think It's useless, it's worthless because of its appearance, but they make a huge mistake. So that's why I say it's an unexpected gift. People looking at Jesus didn't immediately think, this is who we need to build our life on. Prophets tell us this is what would happen, that they would look at him and there'd be nothing in his physical appearance to draw them to him. But somehow, in spite of his rejection, Jesus is the cornerstone. So what can we say about this gift of salvation? Well, it's a gift. It's an unexpected gift. And then thirdly, it's a unique gift. Now, when I say that, it might not sound that impressive. Part of the reason for that is because I think we've devalued the word unique. Right? We, we use the word unique as if it's just a synonym for rare. So we will say things like, uh, you know, I, th- this is a pretty unique Gift, or this is a very unique, you know, work of art or something like that. But the Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament is monogenes, which it's a compound word that literally means one of a kind or one and only. There aren't degrees of uniqueness. Nothing is sort of kind of unique or very unique. To be unique, it means it is one of a kind. There's only one of them. Now, in everyday speech, you know, use it how you want. I mean, just keep on using it to mean rare. I'll throw up a little bit in my mouth, but I'll get over it. But when it comes to the gift of salvation, we have to be very clear. The most famous Bible verse of all time says it this way, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is God's one and only Son. It's that word, monogonese. That's why Peter can say here, look again at verse 12, what he says. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I know it's at this point, a lot of people want to push back and say, well, that sounds so exclusive. How can you say there's only one way to God? First thing we need to remember is that this is actually a consistent teaching of the Bible from beginning to end. I mean, the very first of the Ten Commandments is what? You shall have no other gods before me. And in the New Testament, we find clear statements like this one from Jesus. Jesus said to them, or said to him, I am the way. And the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Apostle Paul says it this way. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. One God. One mediator. One name. Under heaven that's been given by which we must be saved. Yes. Salvation is found exclusively in Jesus. But I think we should also remember the inclusive nature of the appeal for salvation. You know, a few weeks back I told you that Acts chapter 2 verse 21 is the interpretive key for understanding this section of Acts. That verse says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the everyone is inclusive. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your social standing is. What matters is that you call on the name of the Lord. And we see that same thing here. In verse 10, Peter says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. In verse 12, what he says is, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when it says there's no other name given among men, it means mankind. This is the name for all mankind to call out to and to call on. There's one name given among all mankind that we might be saved. Now, a moment ago, I read you a a verse from 1 Timothy about the exclusivity of salvation found in Jesus. There's one mediator. But I want you to hear that verse again in its surrounding context and note both the exclusive and the inclusive nature of the gospel. Here's what Paul said. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. So what are we supposed to do with this knowledge? Well, we are supposed to understand there is one path to salvation. That path is found in Jesus. There's one name that we can call on, but that invitation to call on that name goes out to everyone. You are invited to call on that name. If you have not already done that, that's the call to you today, is to call on the name of Jesus for your salvation. Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for this day. We want to thank you for your word that instructs us, teaches us, corrects us, and gives us hope. And we know there is great power in it. And sometimes we feel uh, as though we're all alone and we have no power, but the power rests with you and your Holy Spirit, and there is power in your name. And we pray that we would not shrink back in fear, but we would live with boldness and that we would hold out the hope of salvation to all. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.